Thanks for tuning in to the CHCA Entrepreneurial Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Carter. Today's episode covers a wide range of topics, from understanding the role of vision and leadership with a company, to time management strategies, to the role that creativity and redefining failure play in a business, and ultimately, understanding the role of social media, how drowning in information can also be starving for wisdom. This is all thanks to today's guest, Tim Shigel. Tim is the managing partner of Refinery Ventures, which is a venture capitalist firm, a firm dedicated to investing in early-stage technology companies. I'll let Tim explain the special meaning behind the term refinery. So the name refinery comes from the idea in the Bible of being refined as, as in terms of our character and also as leaders, right? So leadership is something that you're not born with, uh, but leadership is developed by overcoming adversity and exceptional leaders thrive in that. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's what we're all about. So all about like hypergrowth leadership. Excellent. So Tim, in your work with Refinery and your work with all the other things that you've been involved with, you clearly have been involved yourself in the role of leadership. And as many of the students at CHCA and many students in business programs around often hear leadership is central to this concept of vision. And the leader is the one that people look to for having that vision and also for articulating that vision. So I'm curious in your experience, to what extent have you worked on your vision? What does that look like when you, to use your language, refine your vision? Sure. That's a great question. Um, I think sometimes people think the vision comes from some innate brilliance of some sort. Uh, I, I think that the part that the leader does that's probably the most important is the communication or articulation component of it. But um, ultimately, I think the source of the vision, it, it, from what I've seen in terms of leaders who've been who've been um, high performance and companies, is it starts with the servant leadership, you know, a, a service. So the desire to serve others, to make people's lives better, that's the motivation behind the vision uh, in most, if not all of the best cases I can think of. So that starts with humility, that starts with uh, listening, uh, that starts with understanding. Uh, you know, in, in a company, the, the CEO isn't necessarily the person with all the ideas. Sometimes we think that because the media paints it that way, right? As if, you know, Zuckerberg has all the ideas that happen at Facebook and, and that's just not the case. And any good leader would tell you that that's not the case if they were being honest. Um, so uh, the leader though is able to to synthesize all that input and great leaders help their uh, employees um acquire that same sense of vision uh, internally, uh, not in its articulation, but it's in its empathy and understanding. So the way they do that is by making sure that the rest of the organization has opportunities to also listen and understand the customer. And the more that the organization understands 
the customer and can relate to their impact with the customer, the better prepared they are to serve them. And if they understand that, then then people would all be operating, you know, in the same vision or along the same vision. Uh, a great example of that is a company called MailChimp. You know, it does uh, uh, email marketing for small, medium businesses. That company is probably approaching a billion dollars in revenue today. Uh, didn't take any venture capital money, grew on its own. I was talking to the founder about it when they were about 150 million or so in revenue. And I said, what's your secret to all that growth? And he said, it was just customer focus. And one of the things that they do, they probably spend as much time and money on internal marketing than they do on external. Meaning they make sure every single employee has opportunities to experience what the customer experiences. Whether you're a developer or, you know, whatever role you're in in the company so that you have more empathy and so that helps them think of new products, new ideas in terms of their roadmap. So they never run out of new ideas. I think Jeff Bezos at Amazon have a similar quote. As long as people have pain points, you know, we're going to be in business. So um, uh, it was just fascinating that all that growth, the successful growth at MailChimp, uh, that he attributed it to, to that one thing. And when you get to have bigger companies, people are, can be very far removed from the customer, right? Which is why it took intentional effort to come up with creative and interesting ways for every single employee to interact and experience what the customer's experience. Now, when you talk about ideas like humility or empathy and its role of leadership, it brings to mind Jim Collins's outline in Good to Great of the Level 5 Leadership, where really he examined people who weren't always exactly center stage, weren't ego-driven, but yet had this sense of the mirror and the window, you know, looking out the window at success and saying, here's why, look at all the people who've helped, and then looking in the mirror when it comes to failure and saying, I'm the reason that this didn't work. In your own experience, this is this is something that's not always easy to work on or develop, this idea of humility or empathy. Where have you found it best or easiest to implement those strategies? How have you used that or other leaders that you know of who have used those aspects well? Well, first of all, I think many people learn it. I know I did learn it by doing it wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> it's painful mistakes, uh, which which is the best teacher um, oftentimes. So, uh, you know, that's that's where I think a lot of people learn that. Now, some people have, they have that gift, right? They, some people have a gift of uh, discernment and listening more than others. And I think, unfortunately, business and media, again, makes us think that the leader, the communicator is the one that, um, uh, it's, it's opposite, right? They don't, they don't show that side. They don't show the quiet, introspective side of the leader. They show the public image communicator side of the leader, right? Um, the uh, so uh, I think it definitely take is something that takes work, it takes development, it requires uh, self awareness, and uh, the best way to do that is to um, surround yourself with good advisors and, and counselors. Uh, there's a good book out called The Trillion Dollar Coach, about Bill Campbell in Silicon Valley, and Bill Campbell was a like college football player, coach, I think at an Ivy League school, potentially. He was out in Silicon Valley, but he became, I mean, he was like coach confidant to Steve Jobs, to Eric Schmidt at Google. 
you know, to all the top names. And the Eric Schmidt story is kind of interesting because Eric Schmidt was already a very successful CEO when he was brought into Google. And Bill suggested he needed a coach. And of course, Eric Schmidt's like, what do you mean I need a coach? I've had all this success. How, how can I possibly need a coach? Well, it worked out really well. And what Bill would do, Bill would literally sit in a lot of management team meetings and he would just observe. He did not participate. He just observed. And asked, after the meeting, he'd then review and reflect back to the mirror part, right? Uh, with Eric Schmidt and say, okay, what could you have done better? Did you see people's reaction when you changed the subject? Did you notice that so-and-so really had something on their mind they wanted to say, but they never got a chance to say it? And so it's it's a real-time coaching uh, and direct, not indirect, not like talking about it later, like the coach was in the meeting too, right? Um, and uh, which I think is really, really helpful and positive. And uh, because we all have blind spots back to self-awareness and objectivity, we can try as much as we'd like, but we can't see it all, especially when we're in the act. Again, just like sports and an athlete, right? Uh, you'd think nothing about having a coach, right? Of course you'd have a coach and you'd have somebody helping you train. Well, why don't you do that in business or in life? Well, you should. Uh, but sometimes we think that that means that's equated with failure or something. Uh, we're actually an investor in a company called Torch Labs and they're a marketplace to connect leaders with coaches and mentors. So um, yeah, I think it's there's a growing understanding of the importance of it. I guess kind of to wrap up that, that thought, I think the best leaders the, the, and the people that are, are best at this are actually constantly learning. They're, they're constantly trying to improve. They're not static. They don't think of themselves as, hey, I've got this. I've learned everything there is to learn. I'm an experienced CEO. I can just lead. Uh, that's that's not true. Um, there's a saying I heard from a, an author on this subject that was, you know, the company can't grow if the CEO is not growing. So if you expect your employees or your team to grow and to stretch and to step out in faith or to, to take chances and risks, they have to see you do it. You have to model that. And oftentimes that's very uncomfortable, right? Because the CEO may be more concerned with their image and how they appear uh, to their employees or their customers. And so it requires them to be a lot more vulnerable. Uh, and in that is when they, when they are vulnerable and authentic, I think is when they really start to succeed and, and start to see people rally around them and support them. So when, when you talk about this idea of growth and kind of having the growth mindset, it reminds me of things that I've read in John Maxwell, where he talks about personal growth and having a personal growth plan. And Given your work with all the companies you've been involved with, uh, including Share This, which I want to talk about in a little bit, you've obviously come across time management issues. I mean, any any CEO, any any person who's run a business or is doing this has had to figure out how they're going to manage time. And it typically comes down to self-discipline. And I'm curious, what strategies do you use? What are the techniques that you have found successful when it comes to managing your time or prioritizing your responsibilities as a leader in your businesses? Yeah, the, another area where we're constantly trying to improve and do a better job, but a couple of things that come to mind. Uh, first of all, you know, we're all given the same amount of time, right? So nobody has an advantage uh, from that standpoint, right? We all, there's only 24 hours in a day. And I learned some good lessons in this from David Green, the founder of Hobby Lobby. 
who I've had the opportunity to hang out with and meet with several times. And he has, um, he talks about, you know, he personally can try to work, you know, uh, harder, but how much harder can he work? Can he double his, his, his work effort? No. But if he can get all his staff to work just a little bit, 10% smarter and more efficiently, that frees him up. Right. So it's, it's about being working smart, which also means prior to prioritizing, right? Uh, ultimately you got to focus on what are the things that only I can do and take stuff off the plate that other people can do. And if, if you're growing and you have a team that's growing, that question is revisited um, kind of continuously because maybe you were doing a task over and over or that, that was your, normally your job, but now you've gotten to the next stage and now that job's not yours anymore. And you need to be able to give it up to somebody else. And that can sometimes be uncomfortable because they may not do it the way you do it, right? And um, your, your goal should be to find somebody who can actually do it better. Uh, and that's where a lot of CEOs uh, and leaders um, stumble is because they don't want to give up control. It's the micromanager problem, right? So they can never get out of that. Uh, they can never get out of that box. Um, the other thing I would say, especially when you're, when you're trying to do so much in time management and you're having a challenging day, I'm re reminded of the guy, uh, one of the Navy, um, I'm trying to remember his name, Ray. Uh, I think he was, he was, he was over the special forces. He wrote a book called, um, you know, make your bed every morning, make your bed. Okay. Every day you just get up and you just, just keep going, right? You just don't stop. You go, you know, you may not be able to answer the big, most complex questions, but what are the things you know you can do today? And I personally feel like you, you build up momentum. Sometimes I'll, I'll actually start with the easy tasks and just get them out of the way because you develop this momentum, kind of like the making your bed. You get up and you made your bed. You've accomplished something for the day, right? And then you can accomplish another thing. So, and I'll do that in a lot of the meetings with our teams as well, is uh, if we have a bunch of stuff on the plate, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure we tick off the easy ones first. Cause as soon as you get five or six things done, there's a good sense of accomplishment, a good sense of confidence and mentally you're able to take on the more complicated issues. Sure. So that, that really speaks to this idea of the organized life and, you know, coming up with, with a plan. And, uh, Tim, I'm, I'm curious, I I've got in front of me a list of 11 attributes of what's called the entrepreneurial mindset. This is like a worksheet put together by venture lab. And what I'd like to do is read this list of 11 items to you. And if you could just tell me the ones that stand out to you, uh, maybe these are ones that you've had to work on. Maybe these are ones that you feel that you embody. Maybe these are ones that you feel are most important to the entrepreneurial mindset. So here are the 11. The first is curiosity. The second is growth mindset. The third is courage. The fourth is persistence and grit. The fifth is opportunity seeking. The sixth is problem solving. Seven is redefining failure. Number eight is optimism. Nine is resourcefulness. 10 is adaptability. And 11 is empathy. 
So that's curiosity, growth mindset, courage, persistence and grit, opportunity seeking, problem solving, redefining failure, optimism, resourcefulness, adaptability, and empathy. So which of those stand out most to you as key aspects of the entrepreneurial mindset? Well, I've written all of these down in the past as attributes or values <laughs> uh, and probably have struggled with trying to figure out a framework to um, to prioritize them. Uh, curiosity is always on there. Um, so some of them may be kind of tactics. Uh, I, you know, so in other words, redefining failure and curiosity uh, and growth all sort of go together. Um, so a growth mindset, I think, again, the underlying motivation in growth mindset is a bit of curiosity. What am I capable of? What is possible? Right? It starts with that question. And it also, it's growth mindsets stance towards failure is one of learning. Right? So by definition, you look at failure as what's the worst that can happen? I'm going to learn something, right? I may hurt my head, but it'll, it'll heal. Yeah, sure. You know? <laughs> sure. Um, so those are pretty tied together. Um, uh, maybe some other ones, but those, I think, you know, you could throw problem solving into it. I think courage, persistence, optimism, uh, maybe also kind of can be grouped together uh, in terms of uh, kind of confidence, right? When you... Um, if you're going to do something important and new, by definition, it's not, if it's new, it's never been done before. Nobody's done it, right? So, so, so therefore nobody can give you the answer, right? It's, it's the unknown. And I think I had this revelation and there's a you know famous Steve Jobs interview from years and years ago where he had the same revelation that the future can, you can impact the future, right? The future doesn't just happen to you you actually can happen to it. Like you can create something that wasn't planned to exist unless you were born and, and you did that thing, right? So Leaders Make the Future is a, is a good book by Bob Johansson that, that is in that same theme. And I think once you come to realize that, you, you, you don't just accept what you're given, but you find a better way. And you do that because, and you persist at it, um, because it, it's not a blind persistence. It's kind of like when you do a startup and you say, oh, you just never give up. You never give up. Well, yeah, you do give up at some point, you know, you, you <laughs> back to redefining failure, right? It's like, okay, I learned the lesson. It's been three years. I'm not learning anything else. This is not working. I have to shift. So persistence sometimes gets confused, I think, because they think it's just doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, the, the, the question is, what's the goal? And do you adapt and change? But as you as you overcome problems, as I was saying at the beginning with leadership, you know, is overcoming adversity, and exceptional leaders thrive in that. You develop more and more confidence that there's not a challenge that you you can't overcome any better than anybody else can. Right? Why not you? So I think that's optimistic. It's an op I'm, I'm not an optimistic view because you've defined the risk. Hey, worst thing is I'm going to lose. I'm going to learn something. And you understand and see a better future and your persistence gives you confidence and courage, therefore courage 
to kind of go into the unknown. So just on the fly, that's kind of how I would tie those things together. Adaptability kind of goes into what I just said. The, the opportunity seeking empathy maybe goes to the other's focus, right? Not being focused on yourself, but others. And again, every, every one of these things, there's a uh, polarity, right? There's, there's a good side of it and, a, and the negative side of it. Um, the, uh, so like with a, a lot of entrepreneurs make the mistake of they think they have an idea or a solution and they're excited about that and that's what they go out with instead of thinking what the problem is. And then, you know, cause the, cause the, the solution is like your baby, right? It's your, it's your creation and you love it and you just think it's awesome, but maybe the rest of the world doesn't really understand it or love it. Sure. And for it to be successful, the rest of the, it has to meet a need that other people have. So it's a balance between the polarity there is my own resourcefulness or ability to come up with solutions. And on the other hand, the problem on the other side, right? And does it really address a problem that other people, that resonates with other people? Now, Tim, since you linked some of these aspects together, you know, curiosity, the growth mindset leads to redefining failure as a lesson learned. Can you give us an example of a time in your professional life where you experienced failure or a business you were involved with experienced failure and you were able to, maybe it was immediately, maybe it was years later, see it as a lesson? There are a bunch of them, but one of them that's, I can still feel <laughs> when share this was growing and we went from like 20 people to 40 or 50 people. Um, the dynamics in a fast growing company, um, it's anybody I've talked to who's ever been in a growth situation, it's it would describe it as managed chaos. Like it's not nice and orderly if you're growing fast, whether that's going from zero revenue to 10 million or 10 to 100 or 100 to a billion. You, you look inside a large company and you, you look at how many people in a large company have actually been in a high growth part of the company. It's actually very few, right? Because the rules to make the high growth happen are very different than the rules to just steward something along that's growing small and incrementally, right? Okay. Different, different, different skills. So anyway, we were growing very fast and uh, started running into communication issues with the team, uh, uh, saw that we needed to do something. So I did a 360 review. I brought in somebody to help facilitate and get feedback from all the employees on the company and, and, and on me. Because when, you're, when there's 20 people, everybody kind of knows everybody. It's a bit of an extended family and they get kind of comfortable with that. And I can have one-on-one -on -one time with every single employee. When you get to 40 people or 50 people, you, I can't do that anymore, right? right? So people can't say, oh, this is how Tim would have done it or whatever, right? They're, they're removed. So anyway, we did this feedback session and I read the feedback and it was a disaster and it was like a punch in the gut. It hurt. I mean, I, I felt like I was sick for a day. Like I remember reading it, I was at a hotel and I just didn't want to get up. I didn't want to. And a number of the things that were captured in this report, including some verbatim quotes from some of the employees were just not true at all. But after I got to synthesize it, I realized it doesn't matter if it was true or not. It was their perception. And so, for example, a number of decisions that some of the manager, the way some of the managers were managing some of the employees were, were, were 
bad or poor, making poor decisions, but the employee took that as coming directly from me. Oh, okay. So they just saw the managers as an extension of me, of something that I already directed or preordained in some way. And what I realized through all that is in order to grow, in order to have a healthy behaving organization and culture, you need to be explicit about the values and the vision of the culture. And I wasn't as explicit enough. In a small group, it could be implicit, right? They knew my personality and my character. The 50 employee doesn't know my character, right? So to, without direction, without that guidance, they just don't know what's expected of, of them, of themselves. Sure. Right? So I've been able to use that with a lot of other younger CEOs or first-time CEOs or others who, um, I remember one who came to me and he had, let's say, 500 employees at this point. And was asking me for some input because he felt like he was just singing the same song, like a chatty Cathy, singing the same song every day or just repeating the same slogans all the time. And you could see how irritating it was because this was obviously a smart person who came up with the the business and did a lot of stuff to help form the business originally. And now this person was spending very little time on that because he hired a lot of other smart people to do that. But now just had to kind of help train other employees on what was important and the important values of the company. And it's a little mind numbing. And uh, he said, you know, what can I do about it? I said, well, you got to get used to it. You, you, you can't, in other words, you can't delegate that. You're not going to run away from it that is going to be your job and and your job's going to be to find ways to stay excited and motivated while doing it because they need you to do it. You need to be constantly communicating to people why they're there, why, you know, what's important about the customer, what's important about what they're trying to do and just communicate, communicate, communicate. So it's, um, they said it was a very visceral feeling I had at that point when the company kind of went beyond my, you know, intimate social reach, if you will. And I had to be very explicit about what the values were for the company. Sure. I think a lot of companies do a better job now. A lot of entrepreneurs, if they go through accelerators and other things, some are are really good at at kind of identifying what they want their culture to be. Uh, But it it also can change. Those things change over time as you add new people. Um, And so it's a, it's a living, breathing sort of thing that, um, needs to be embedded in what you do every day, not just statements on a wall. Um, you know, a, an exercise I'd like to do is to say, okay, let's get teams together and talk about some big decisions you had to make as a team and which of the company's principles or values did you lean on or did you use to filter how you made that decision? Oh, interesting. Okay. Like make it real. Like what decision yesterday did you have to do? What, you know, did you have to make and how did your values color that decision? Now, the example that you provided was when you were, uh, the, the business you started, Share This. And could you just give us a little bit of background about this company, uh, how it was founded, how the ideas came about and what exactly um, Share This is all about? So the journey started actually back in 2004. I was an investor in a company called Advertising.com that was bought by AOL. And as a result of that, was I was getting a lot of entrepreneurs and business plans in the ad tech space, right? 
And um, I had, I've been a big fan of machine learning uh, technologies for years. And there was a, there was a, a, a type of machine, a type of machine learning uh, method called genetic algorithms that basically tried to mimic, you know, the evolutionary process for optimizing problems. And it worked really well for certain types of problems with a lot of undefined data. And, um, I, uh, I thought, wow, you could really learn a lot about users online by their online behavior and kind of create what I call the consumer chromosome, right? Your digital DNA, your digital fingerprint mm. that is unique to you. Like nobody else in the world has clicked on all the same things you've clicked on, right? Or shared. And so, um, I reached out to the guy who wrote the book on genetic algorithms, Dr. David Goldberg at University of Illinois and talk to him about this idea that the way we navigate information is going to change uh, because there's so much information out there. We can't process it. We got to filter it. And we're going to do it through this consumer chromosome and learnings through groups of people that have something in common. And he was really into it. So we started to incubate it and we did some, we literally, first of all, we took some, I got some websites, popular websites to give me their traffic logs. And we had three PhDs try to predict what people would do next. Like given they clicked on this, 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 and this, can we predict what the next click is going to be? And we, our results were really good. So we thought, oh, this is interesting. So we kept digging though. We weren't sure we really were on the, the behavior uh, that, you know, would tie it all together. And we literally did some focus groups and some friends of mine that ran it. And we asked people about their internet experience. And this was young and old, experienced, unexperienced. And people were basically skeptical of search. This is 2004. Hmm. They knew search was kind of gamed, rigged, right? Google ad, ad advertising and AdSense. Sure. And um, so we asked this basic question. Where do you find most of your new information? And people said, well, from links people send me. Hmm. That was the light bulb right there. It's like, wait a minute. I receive links from people all the time. I send them out all the time. That is, if I get look at any given day where I found something interesting and new, it wasn't because I randomly searched on it. It's because my friend sent it to me. And so it's sharing. And we share in all sorts of ways, through email, through text, and Facebook wasn't around yet. And I did some research and found out that Nobody, the Mozilla, you know, Netscape browser, nobody knew how often people shared every day or what they shared. It was a black box. And it was easy to kind of figure out that people, basically everybody, whether they're advanced or novice, everybody shares stuff every day, which is billions and billions of transactions. And nobody knows anything about it. Hmm. So that was the beginning of Share This. So we we found out that we could create a piece of code that publishers could put on their website and you could share to all these different places and we could provide the website with better analytics so they understand how their audience is basically sharing their content. And we can learn a lot about all that behavior. And so that's where it started. And um, it's extremely valuable. It's still out there reaching somewhere between 500 to a billion, 500 million to a billion people every month. Wow. 
Wow. Um, and we, we know stuff about what people share independent of which channel they share it in, right? And there's different motivations. It, it turns out there's some patterns like of sharing within Facebook versus email. What, give, give me an example of what one of those patterns would look like. Sure. We actually did a third-party study on this, and then New York Times did one like three years later and came up with the same results. So what we found of the 10 motivations uh, in our study, the number one motivation was to help somebody else that you know would benefit that, from that information. So if I came across something on the internet that was uh, related to you know, podcasting microphones, and I know you and I were talking about that, I might share that with you, right? Sure. I know it would help you. Then there were other motivations. Like, I can share this because it makes me look smart. <laughs> uh, I can share this because I want you to buy something. Um, it turns out those motivations could be broken. Half were self, selfish motivations, like look smart. Half were selfless. Hmm. You're doing it for somebody else. Interestingly, when Twitter and Facebook did those same studies of their users within their walled garden, if you will, their top motivations were selfish. Hmm. Right. So more of the people with inside that context are more interested in just making themselves look good or feel good than they are helping. So give you an, you know, and then, then Facebook came out with the like button, which I knew would make it even worse because the like button was a very low commitment. I could easily like something doesn't say much, but sure. like, if I really want to help you, I'm going to send it to you. Like I'm going to email it to you. I'm going to text it to you. I'm going to bring it to your house. Right. Right. I'm not going to just broadcast it and hope you find it. So there, there's something very different in terms of the psychological and behavioral investment you have in that and, and what kind of uh, response uh, you expect or what kind of uh, impact you expect. And I, it's still playing out today. I mean, I'm, I still read articles today that are touching on that same issue now, whatever, 10 years later. Um, and, and people are still discovering it. Facebook's known it all along and they've been, their behavioral folks have been capitalizing it, on it for a long time. Now you, um, interestingly enough, a few years ago, you gave a talk at Crossroads entitled Drowning in Information, Starving for Wisdom. And there was a little bit of an irony here because as the founder of Share This, which is you know a social media company about sharing information, for you to get up and you know, almost issue a little bit of a warning when it comes to this seemed a little counter to the mission. But I'm curious, you know, you now, since 2004, so 16 years, you have been in the midst of this social media boom and your company has been on the rise of this idea of sharing information. What sort of things have you learned that you could pass on to others about navigating this digital age, about sharing information safely or, you know, um, understanding concepts of your sphere of influence. What, what would be worth sharing on that point? First of all, yeah, I'm not on Facebook or Instagram. My, my three kids are in their twenties. So they're adults. They're not on it. Was that a rule of yours or is that just, they haven't been interested? No self uh, realization. Oh, interesting. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, the uh, first of all, you have to step back and look at any of these things. It, it's a tool, right? And technology is a tool. Social media is a tool, just like a hammer is a tool, right? A hammer is a very important tool if you're 
a craftsman or you're woodworking or, you know, whatever. If you're a homeowner, you probably have a hammer, right? A hammer could also be used to kill somebody or to hurt somebody, right? So it's all in how you use it. And some people, obviously people who are in the media business, uh, influence business, know how to use the tool and are good at using it. And it is another media channel, right? It's a, it's a channel that they can reach a lot of people on for purposes of delivering, you know, a, a message of some sort, right? Um, but there's two, well, a couple of reasons uh, that I got off it. Uh, one, um, first of all, just just a time sink. Mm. So I think at the at the top of this, we talked about how do you how do you prioritize your time? Surfing through a bunch of mindless, senseless photos and Facebook stuff is not, you know, you could be doing something constructive. You could actually sure. be making something. So one, it was just, just stupid time. Uh, two is, um, uh, it's, it's not, the, 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 they're not real relationships, right? Uh, it gives the illusion of having real relationships and people think that they do because they have a lot of followers and stuff and it. That fills you know, it gives you this serotonin, you know, high, uh, but it doesn't really fill the relationship gap that people really need. So I talked about in that talk, the Dunbar number, but, you know, Dr. Robin Dunbar, who studied, you know, organizations and man from the beginning of time. And basically there's a, there's a limit on how many relationships we can manage. And that limits about 150 uh, and it breaks down to, you know, 150 down to 50 down to um, 25 down to five, right? The five people that'll show up at the hospital when you get hurt, right? Or the mm, five sure. people that will be in your wedding or what have you, right? And as you go out in that sphere, you those those relationships are looser because you it's a, it's a time issue for one thing, right? You just, there's only so much time in the day back to prioritizing. I can't spend the same amount of time with all 150 people, let alone 1,500 people or 15,000 right. people. So, uh uh, we, we are social beings. We're created social. We need to have those social relationships. What Dunbar said um, they discovered for the first time was that that number for the first time in history of man was actually going down because of social media, because people were getting the illusion that they were more social when in fact their, their social skills were deteriorating. It's just like a muscle, right? That muscle was atrophying because relationships are actually messy. You can't go back and edit something you said that hurts somebody's feeling. You can try online, you can do it and they'll never know you said it, right? You can craft your persona and your image. You can't do that in real life, right? So, uh, and, and, and the real life part is what's, is what's real. Um, the other is uh, you do see people uh, online who we all have them, right? The ones, oh, the crazy, you know, aunt or grandmother or cousin or whoever, that just incessantly posting whatever the you other know, soapboxes or what have you. And it's really them reaching out, you know, looking for recognition, looking for acceptance. Mm. And, and it's sad because they're not going to find it. Right. They'd be better to turn that thing off and go build some real relationships with other family members or friends. Uh, but it, it's just, it's just them reaching out and screaming. And so our kids saw it because they saw friends or people they knew in school whose life looked glamorous and awesome. 
you know, on, on Instagram, but they knew they were miserable. They were actually depressed. Right. Interesting. Right? It was, yeah. it was compensating. So when we did family vacations and did fun things, one, I don't know if it was a rule as much as an expectation. We didn't publish it all on social media. We did one. We just didn't want to be like showing off there, You know, we might've been doing something fun that other people can't do. Sure. Right. Why do you want to put that in their face all the time? You know, um, <laughs> So we just wanted to enjoy what we were doing at the time instead of worrying about showing everybody else how great your life is, right? So I think uh, people have built an unhealthy dependency on it. It could be a time waster. And then uh, the third is uh, I just don't trust the companies, hmm. right? They're, they're, they have not shown that they are responsible with all that information in terms of personal information or using that information in ways that maybe aren't intended. You know, we, we kind of right now look to, you know, we had the tech Titans all testifying to Congress recently and it's, you know, they are not the moral arbiters. They should, you know, they, they are not in a position uh, to tell us right from wrong. Right. Um, and, uh, but they're trying to do that now, right? They're trying to say, well, this content's good, this content's bad. Well, the, who who are they to say that? And I guess the last thing that kind of related to that, to information, is um, there's a group, group of essays uh, in a book called The Hyperlink Society. Uh, Professor, I think it's Scott Turow, Scott Turow or Joseph Turow. Anyway, the, when hyperlinking was first created, the idea was that it was going to help people come up with more diverse, interesting ideas. Right. Right. Uh, it turns out it's the opposite. Again, this is the internet generally, and what social media does is is putting it on like rocket fuel in a toxic way. Hmm. It builds these echo chambers, and every issue devolves into black and white, red or blue. You know, off and on, bad and good. Uh, it, it it actually serves no purpose in understanding and helping you understand or resolve things. Conflict is not resolved in social media, period, right? Uh, e even email. You now, if you work in a company and you you get somebody who like sends out a long email rant, the worst thing to do is respond with another long email rant, right? <laughs> right, right. You go and talk to that person. Hey, something must have really got you worked up. Let's talk about this. But um, social media may, has made it so easy, right? We, uh, the social bullying, picking on people, you know, people, it's easy to criticize when, it, when it's faceless and you're not right in front of somebody. So I think it's, it's actually been uh, reducing, like I said, atrophying our skills to have productive, effective communications and relationships with other people. And that's part of, yeah, you know, it's just put fuel on the fire to the current culture and political climate out there because it's just amplified it. Absolutely. I think that's an important message for, you know, not just the listeners, the high school listeners, but for all of us to, to take in in today's day and age. Um, in, in, in closing, Tim, and I really do appreciate the time that you've given us today for this podcast, but um, I'm curious, this is something I've asked a lot of our guests. If you had the opportunity 
to go back and there was yourself in college, you know, you as a, as a 20 year old, 21 year old, and you were able to give yourself a piece of advice that you think would help you navigate the waters you've navigated in an easier, calmer way. Um, what, what would that piece of advice look like? What is it you would encourage yourself to do or not do? Well, the one that's coming to mind is actually, it's interesting, is to actually, for me anyway, may not apply to everybody, but is to be patient. Oh. <laughs> like I wanted to get on to a successful thing so fast instead of kind of paying the dues and, and you know, if somebody said, well, you got to go do, you got to go sign up for this program. It's going to be three years. And then after that, you'll be able to go do whatever. I'd be like, no, I just want to go do that thing and pass the three-year schooling or job or what, you know, whatever it is. Um, and I, cause I felt like life was going to be over before I know it. Right. And it turns out when you're that age, you got plenty of time. And so like, like I've told our kids and I believe this is true. Like what, uh, you know, I studied ele electrical engineering. My son was aerospace engineering. Your daughter was industrial design. And another daughter was nursing. Um, I think there's too much pressure to figure out what you want to do when you're in college. Like, don't worry about that who knows? You don't, you have no idea. Like go sample stuff, right? Go shadow people at their job, you know, try different things to figure out what it's really like. But in school, you have no idea what those jobs are about. Right. But, but it is a time to learn something. And this is where I think sometimes there's a danger, I think in some entrepreneurship programs, because people want to be entrepreneurs, but they don't know anything. Hmm. And so like when I studied electrical engineering, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew that the future was going to be you know, driven by technology. So the more I knew about technology, the better position I would be in to navigate it. Sure. But I had no idea what I was going to do. And, and what I did, you couldn't have predicted. Um, uh, but I had a solid degree. I, I understand the physical sciences, right? Enough. Um, I, I know enough to know when somebody's doesn't know what they're talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I may not be able to build a TV by myself, but I kind of know how it works. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? And there's so many people that just don't. Um, so um, don't, don't be in a rush to figure out what your whole career is going to be. Um, you know, it, it's better to, to, to be patient, to learn something, like really learn it and be an expert at it. Right. There's no limit. You don't have to be an adult to be an expert at something. Like it's just a matter of time and energy that you can put into it. So find out something that really gets you energized and dig deep, learn from, learn from the best. You know, my son who's aerospace engineering now test drives cars. Hmm. It's not what he expected to do, but he, he turns out you know, aerospace and mechanical are, are pretty similar, but he would work on cars in high school and we go to car shows and he'd take these cars and he had a whole Volkswagen Beetle. He basically rebuilt and he talked to all the old guys and there were very few young guys who were actually working on cars and knew how they worked. And uh, he would learn so much by just being in the detail of it. And all that was huge, huge learning for what he does now. Right. Cause he was, he was in the guts of it. He was there and he knew as much about building those cars as the adults did by that point. Because by the time he got through college, he had built three cars, wow. right? Um, mm -hmm. And I just kind of fanned that flame. I enabled it and 
encouraged it and just kind of like, you can do it. You can do whatever you want. You know, it's just a matter of whether you're willing to put in the time. Sure. Right? And so I would just say, you know, to myself, be patient, put in the time, you know, find something you can be an expert at. Right. And then once you do, opportunities just open up. You know, they just always do. Absolutely. Well, Tim, that's great advice and a wonderful talk today. I've appreciated having you on the podcast. So thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Congrats and good luck, everybody. Excellent. Thank you. Tim Shiggle was the guest on today's podcast. To learn more about Tim and his role as the managing partner of Refinery, go to refinery.com. That concludes this episode of the CHCA Entrepreneurial Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a favorable review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all future episodes.